Well, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I got for you today? We have a spicy episode today. We're going to be talking about a new casualty figure that came out about the Russo-Ukrainian War. We're going to be talking about U.S. nukes making their way towards Eastern Europe and speculations that have popped up over this week of a dirty bomb going off in Eastern Europe. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid fire news. So we'll start with Russia, as they have resumed the blockade of Ukrainian grain exports. The Black Sea Protocol, which was the agreement between Russia and Ukraine to allow Ukrainian grain to leave port, but they would stop in Turkey. Uh, and this was mainly because the Ukrainians were afraid that the Russians were stealing grain from the occupied territories in Ukraine, territories which are now part of Russia, um, they were, they wanted the Turks to stop them and make sure they, those were not Ukrainian, and so this was an agreement between Turkey, Russia, and Ukraine, and uh, basically gave Turkey full control over all the ships going through the straits. Uh, that, that's, that was more on the download, though, everyone was more focused on Ukraine and Russia, but just another thing I'll have to add to the list of stuff to talk about when the war is over. But this was an agreement that allowed grain to make its way out from the war-torn areas in Ukraine. And this alleviated the food crisis that people were afraid was going to happen when the war started and Russia was blockading Ukraine's ports. And the grain couldn't get out. Now, Russia's blockading the ports again. Now, in the beginning, I said, this is a siege war. I don't see Russia lifting the blockade because this is... It's a siege war. It's not just sieging cities. They're sieging the entire economy. That's the way I viewed the war at the time. And it appears that now this brief respite of a couple months is over. And Russia is now sieging down the Ukrainian economy again. They lifted the siege and now they put it back on at perhaps one of the worst possible times. Both for Ukraine as well as for countries dependent on Ukrainian grain and fertilizer. Because they're one of the main produces the fertilizer right alongside Russia. So at this precise moment in time, as we're talking about Russian mobilization, as we're talking about Russia but changing out its leadership and bringing in 300,000 people, uh, soldiers, trained reservists, some of whom uh, fought in the war earlier, who have the precise skill sets that you would want if you were going to maintain offensive operations. At the same time, we're talking about these things in the military front. Now we have the resumption of this blockade, which leads me to believe Russia is going to go for the jugular when they do make this move. And I believe it's going to be the winter offensive that they are infamous for. And uh, I think it's going to break the back of Ukraine, but that's the military side of things. But with this blockade coming back in, we got to think about the food, uh, the economic side of things, because this is going to cause food prices to rise. Now, it shouldn't for places like, say, oh, I don't know, the United States, because we should be producing our own food. No, 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 no. 
Uh, but who cares about that? <laughs> but it's going to cause food prices to rise. And the places that are going to be worst hit is likely going to be Africa, parts of Europe, and maybe parts of the United States. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. The, the, the U.S. is about 50-50, given the current administration running things. Because under normal circumstances, it wouldn't mean anything to us, aside from fertilizer. But this could hit us. It could not hit us. It really depends on where we are economically that no one feels like talking about. So we all just get blindsided. But the biggest losers of this is undoubtedly going to be the third world. It's going to be Africa, mainly parts of the northern half of Africa. It's going to be parts of the Middle East. Uh, We talked about when the grain shipments first got cut off and then resumed uh, because of the the deal, the Black Sea Protocol that was agreement that was agreed to, my mistake, uh, we talked about how it was affecting Lebanon, who got so much of its grain imported from Ukraine. We were talking about how so many countries in the Middle East and in Africa are dependent on Russian and Ukrainian grain. So even if they were t- to have 100%, even if it was like a 50-50 between Russia and Ukraine, you're still talking about if the Russians are blocking the ports, you've lost half of your grain export, your, your imports. You've lost half of your grain imports. And you need only look at a map of Northern Africa and the Middle East to see that they don't grow food. You can't grow food in a desert. Now, in the future, maybe they'll have aqua farming, but they need the grain and it wasn't going to get to them. The Black Sea Protocol enabled that to happen. Now the Black Sea Protocol is dead, and the Russians, um, the justification for them pulling out of that agreement and resuming the blockade was from, actually, from something we're going to talk about later. Is it later or now? Oh, hold on. Oh, it's, it's right now. I, I, I forgot if I put it in one of the later segments. Um, the Ukrainians had launched a drone attack on the Russian Navy that was stationed in the Bay of Sevastopol. That's uh, the large naval base in Crimea that they seized in 2014. They've been operating off of since. So the Ukrainians have launched a drone strike on that. And the Russians' response to that drone strike was to resume this blockade. At least that's what they say. And, well, they're pretty good on their word. So we can give them a little bit of you know, benefit of the doubt here, uh, but perhaps they were intending to do this all along, and they were given a really good reason between this and what happened in the Crimean Bridge. So, but uh, the reason that they gave was because the Ukrainians had attacked some of the ships that were actually involved in the agreement, because they were patrolling the seas, and they would otherwise have been blockading the ports of Ukraine, they were instead escorting the ships the grain ships out from port to Turkey, where they would be inspected. So, the Ukrainians, in effect, have shot themselves in the foot, although the Russians are accusing the United Kingdom of having orchestrated this and having pushed Ukraine to do this. And they also blame the UK for the Nord Stream attacks, the, the ones that took the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines out of commission. Luckily, didn't destroy them, now, I blame the United States. It's probably a, the, the both of them combined. But that's what the Russians are saying about this. 
the Ukrainians are not crying foul because, well, they're going to get blockaded again. And the, the, their economy is probably going to tank harder and they're going to demand more money. And then we're probably going to give it to them. And then it's just going to end up in the pockets of the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian military high command and everyone else won't see a dime. That's probably how it's going to go down. But this is a pretty fateful move because the economic siege of Ukraine has now resumed. So we'll see if the two come back to the table and if they can re reach another agreement. I'm not entirely sure if they will. The Russians are looking pretty dead set on finishing this thing in the near to mid future. I don't think this war is going to go on for another eight months. But we will see. Uh, in other news, we have the Lebanese president, Michael Aoun, Michael Aoun, uh, I think that's it, Michael Aoun, he has finished his six-year term as the president of the country, and he's now stepping down, and this is unintentionally created, and, well, not created, but really accentuated the political crisis in the country, uh, they've been in a political crisis since their depression began in earnest. Uh, this is a couple months ago. We talked about it and how they were starving. They're starving. They, they were in the worst depression in their country's history. We're talking numbers of unemployed that we in the United States would have associated with the Great Depression from our own history. And they hadn't hit the bottom yet. They, they were still falling. So you're talking a total economic collapse in this country. You had uh, what effectively amounted to a humanitarian aid mission from Iran, Iraq, and Syria who allowed the transfer of Iranian oil f across Iraq and across Syria to get to Lebanon where it could alleviate some of these gas prices. Obviously boosting Iran's influence there and we talked briefly about the influence battle that was taking place because the French came in with their economic plan. You had Iran coming in with energy. You had Israel, who's constantly meddling in Libyan affairs, not Libyan, in Lebanese affairs, and the other potential players who could have gotten involved. I, I, Iran decisively won that. Again, they're really good at this whole grand strategy thing, especially when it comes to their region. So they stepped in, they supplied the people with oil, the people in Lebanon with oil. So at the very least, they, they had some lower energy prices. But they've been in a, a pet, goodness, a perpetual political crisis ever since because the government coalition failed, like, almost immediately when the Depression hit. And they've been really struggling to get one back in. And we covered that when they were trying to implement the French economic recovery plan, but they didn't have the governing coalition to do so because they, without the coalition, they didn't have the legal authority. The caretaker government didn't have the legal authority to go through with it. So they, they've been in a really rough spot and now they're, they don't even have a president. So they have no, they have no leadership. They can't decide on who the new leadership is going to be. And they're in an economic crisis. So they're in a very rough spot, and I imagine they're in steep competition with Sri Lanka, uh, but at the very least, the people in 
Lebanon haven't overthrown their government by force, like what has nearly happened in Sri Lanka, where they, they were storming presidential palaces. And I guess as, a, as, an, as another comparison to that, what happened in Iraq, where uh, Muqtada al-Sadir, he said he was going to step out of politics and everyone went wild. And they were rioting, but Iraq isn't necessarily in an economic depression like those two countries are. But there's rumbling going on in the Middle East. Uh, oddly enough, the, it makes Syria look stable by comparison. Maybe one of these days the Syrian civil war will come to an end. Perhaps if we stopped occupying their land. You know, either that or the Russians step in again. So we'll see. We have lots of, lots of political turmoil there. And now we get to uh, this this story about, hold on, I'm getting lost in my notes here. We have Armenia, Armenia's prime minister, Nikol Pashinyan, is in favor of extending the stay of Russian peacekeepers. And this is a very interesting story because he said, quote, we want the Russian peacekeepers to continue their mission. I'm prepared to put my signature on a document in Sochi. This is the place where the Russia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan are going to be meeting for to talk about the peacekeepers and whatnot. He said, I'm prepared to put my signature on a document in Sochi, extending the peacekeepers' mandate 10, 15, or 20 years. I suggest that the Russian president come up with this initiative. I can make the proposal, but Russia needs to support it. End quote. So, essentially, he's asking for the Russian troops to stay there forever. <laughs> he wants them to stay there forever. Now, I was joking about it. I I was joking, well, half-joking, about the Russian peacekeepers who were, who were going to be there, and then they would just not leave. But here's the Armenian prime minister asking for them not to leave. Now, Russia might go along with this, but knowing how the Russians choose to conduct the diplomacy in the former Soviet space, they're probably going to look to Azerbaijan to get their okay as well before they make these types of decisions because they don't want to turn away the former Soviet states from Russia. They would like for them to come back to Russia in a peaceful and, you know, dignified manner. They don't want to have to give the Ukraine treatment to them. They would prefer a, a Belarus-style thing. Or for them to be integrated into one of Russia's various economic unions, like the Eurasian Economic Union, or perhaps even a part of Russia's military alliance. Uh, they're like their formal alliance, the CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization. They would prefer to have an overlap between those two, like all their military allies, like hardcore allies, not strategic partners like they are with China, but like if I'm attacked, you come to save me. If you're attacked, I come to save you. Which really just means if they're attacked, Russia comes to save them, because they all surround Russia. But preferably Russia would have all of their military allies in the former Soviet space wrapped up into their economic alliance of the Eurasian Union. Essentially bringing them all together, and maybe potentially you get a Union state between Russia and all the various former Soviet states, which eventually promises a union between the two countries. So, given how Russia treats its neighbors and 
former constituent parts, they're probably not going to do this, at least not without telling the Azerbaijani government that they're going to do this, because apparently it, it only needs a two-thirds support for something like this to happen. They're probably going to consult the Azerbaijanis, they're going to try to reach an agreement to get the Azerbaijanis on board, and then they would follow through with extending the mandate of the peacekeepers. So that the peacekeepers can stay in both countries indefinitely, rather than just doing it because Armenia wants it. you know. And then, then it looks like you're picking sides. Now granted, Armenia is an, an ally of Russia, and Azerbaijan is more of a partner, a really close partner. But Russia would prefer to have both. And if they can, they will have both. I mean, they have peacekeepers in both countries, so it makes sense to consult both countries if you're going to extend the mandate. But this is a very interesting story, because we could be witnessing a slow-motion annexation of this region, not like a formal annexation where we saw with the territories in Ukraine, but more like a, a slow and steady integration of these neighboring countries into Russia proper. I mean, Georgia is under occupation, basically. No, well, South Ossetia and Abkhazia are under occupation, but Georgia functionally can't do much by itself because of the Russian occupation. So there's that. But we're seeing a slow-motion integration of the former Soviet states with Russia. And I imagine them winning the war in Ukraine is going to accelerate this process, uh, especially with the Union state with Belarus. So this is a very interesting story in light of the broader geopolitical movements we've seen with Russia. And then we have the Iraqi parliament, who has, uh, unlike Lebanon, managed to bring in a new governing coalition. This coalition now headed by Mohammed Shia al-Sudani. And that rounds out the rapid-fire news. Now, we'll get into the meat in just a moment. Alrighty. Now we can get into the meat of this episode. And we'll start with a new casualty figure I've come across. Because uh, it's, it's wild. I'll just say that right off the bat. It's absolutely wild. And how I came across it was I was listening to a Rogue News broadcast... And they brought up a figure from the Committee of Soldiers' Mothers. Uh, this is specifically the Ukrainian branch of this committee. And these mothers, these are mothers who've lost contact with their sons and are looking for answers from their government as to what happened to them. And the number that came out from this organization, from, you know, and this is purely Ukrainian losses here, the number that came out from this organization was astounding. And I say I, I say that because they put the casualty count, and this is, they say, irretrievable losses. So that could be either dead or wounded permanently, or just missing in action. They put the casualty count at 402,000. With 387,000 of that number being deaths. So you can see why I, I looked at this and I'm like, that's insane. That, that's, that's insane. That's crazy. Like, I, I can't confirm these numbers. And they are way beyond any of the estimates I've seen 
throughout the entire war. Like, from the, we've gotten various numbers that come out here and there. We got one report back in, like, it was May or April, I think, that was saying that the Ukrainians were losing uh, 100 men a day. We played that out over the course of the, uh, over April, May, and the rest of the summer. And you come up with, like, 12, 15,000 men dead by the end, by the time you get to the Kherson Offensive. And in the Kherson Offensive, you have tens of thousands getting irretrievably lost in the opening days of that offensive. So when you look at those, the number that was bouncing around in my head uh, was 25 to 30,000 losses. Somewhere in that vicinity, maybe, you know, give or take, because I'm not necessarily keeping up with all the losses, but just going off of the attritional losses that they suffered over the course of the, the long second phase where the Russians are just sitting there bombing them with artillery, combined with the losses we saw in the Kherson offensive, we were looking at twenty-five to 30,000 losses. Like, that was the number in my head. But that is still 15 times smaller. That's 15 times smaller than 387,000 dead, let alone 402,000 casualties in total. So, you, you gotta ask. Uh, I mean, you gotta ask, are they lying? I mean, heck, the Ukrainian government just came out with their own numbers. And now they say the death count is around 9,000. So that's that's an even bigger difference. Because we, if we go with the Ukrainian government's numbers compared to these numbers, 9,000, that's 43 times smaller than what this committee is claiming. And I'm using the 387,000 figure, not the 402. So, I, I myself doubt the Ukrainian numbers. Again, I, I in my head, just going off of the attritional losses over the course of the summer and the losses from the Kherson offensive, I was looking at twenty-five to 30,000. Maybe 40,000 on the high end, you know, if, we're, if we were just not getting all the numbers. Those are my estimates. The Ukrainian government's estimate is 9,000. The, the, this is a massive difference from 387,000 dead. And not wounded, not casualties, dead. So, is this organization, this committee of soldiers' mothers lying? When they say this? Are they pumping up the numbers? Or is this a genuine count of the Ukrainian men lost? And we have all just been looking at incredibly censored numbers up until now. That's a possibility. Now, again, I'm not going to say these numbers are definitive. Like, I, I, I would like to believe that, that the numbers are closer to what I was looking at and, and closer to what other people have been looking at. Even people who said the Ukrainians are just getting absolutely washed by the Russians, they were not putting the number above 100,000. They weren't even putting the number above 100,000. They were putting it at around 100,000. Because I've seen people talking 80, 90,000. But 387,000? Are these, are these folks lying? Or are we being misled? Because that's, that's an irreconcilable difference right there. That's an irreconcilable difference. It was really alarming number.
if it's true. Now, I can't confirm if it's true, but it's definitely something to, to mark down and take note of for when the war does end and we do get as close to an accurate count as we're going to get. I mean, we, we will see by the end of this thing which of these figures hold up. But I felt it was worth mentioning these numbers. They they took me by so much surprise. I just had to bring them to you. It's like, because th- this is this is some game-changing information. Especially if the actual count is closer to what they're claiming at, compared to what the rest of us are looking at. That, that's a possibility. Maybe we're wrong. But I'm I'm not gonna say it. I'm gonna stick I'm gonna stick to my twenty five to thirty thousand number. But that's insane. That's insane number. So that's something to think about as we move forward into what's likely gonna be the third and final phase of this war. Well, I guess the final phase will be the actual denazification and demilitarization, but that's you know, after the war ends. That that's phase four for the Russians. So as we head into what's likely to be phase three, the most exciting part of the war from everyone who's not involved, those are numbers to keep in mind. Now maybe, and also maybe the the casualty count does eventually end up at those numbers and it'll be interesting to see that they were claimed way back in, here in, you know, October, the end of October and then it ends up being that number later on when the war's actually over. But definitely something to think about our next story we have u.s nukes heading towards eastern europe so over the course of the last week well uh, i i say the last week but truthfully we've been talking about nukes for months now with increasing increasing you know increasing frequency and it's strange to me, because I'm looking at this and like, there's, what's the reason that either one of these sides, be it NATO or Russia, are going to use a nuke? The Ukrainians don't have one. <laughs> Ironically enough, they surrendered all their nukes to Russia a long time ago. But who's going to use this nuke? Because the Russians aren't. They have no reason to. They're winning. So... Over the course of these last few months, as we've been hearing people talk increasingly about the use of nukes, and of course it's always Russia. It's always Russia who's going to use the nuke, not us who are getting obliterated and watching all of our equipment and all of our money go down the toilet. It's not us who are watching our our credibility that we've staked the family farm on in Ukraine go to the, uh, go to the outhouse, so to speak. Of course, it's not going to be us who would fire the nuke, uh, even though we're getting rolled back, even with all of our support going into Ukraine, the Ukrainians still can't win. Of course, it wouldn't be us. It's going to be Russia and the madman, even though they're winning. But um, that's just something I've been noticing over the past few months. I brought it up a couple episodes ago. But over this last week, we've seen increasing talk, not just of the usage of nuclear weapons, but of the United States now speeding up deployments of its updated nuclear missiles to bases in Europe. And this came as NATO was preparing to run nuclear drills and exercises, which themselves came right off the heels of Russia's own nuclear drills that they conducted 
not that long ago, just a couple weeks ago. Then there was also a story about Finland, who was preparing to host U.S. nukes. Finland being the latest of the two members to join NATO, after, you know, after getting extorted by Turkey in order to do so and get Turkey's yes vote. But all this talk of nukes, this deployment of nukes to Eastern Europe, the deployment of nukes to Finland, another country hard up on Russia's border, this is a very risky endeavor. This is, this is an incredibly dangerous game of brinkmanship that we're currently playing. Like, people speak of, oh, this nuke can destroy all of Texas. Oh, this nuke, the, the Tsar Bomba was 50 megatons, and it wasn't even at its full power. The original version of the bomb was 100 megatons, twice as powerful. The, the bombs we have today are way bigger than what we saw in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They could take out whole countries and whole states. And then it's like, well, yes, we know that. We knew that during the Cold War. And yet, we get the bright idea of forward deploying them to the border of a country who can nuke us back. That's a that's a great idea. That's that's a that's a fantastic idea. It's not. And the people, the folks of the Duran, Alex and Alexander, they speculated that this is most likely because the U.S. has no answer to Russian and Chinese hypersonics, which they can put nukes on as well so th those hypersonics can reach us in minutes instead of hours so if you forward deploy the nukes well now you your nukes can get to russia or china in minutes instead of hours because they're closer they don't have to travel as fast but it's like th this is an incredibly dangerous game because again nukes today are a lot more powerful than they were back in the day and quite frankly back in the day they were pretty damn powerful anyway once we got to the megaton range, because a megaton is a thousand times stronger than a kiloton, and the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki weren't exactly in the triple digits for kilotons. They were in the low double digits. And so we're looking at weapons capable of destroying whole societies in a singular event. These are not hypersonic missiles. These are not thermobaric missiles. These are not cruise missiles. These are not guided missiles. Well, some of them might be guided. And some of them might be on hypersonic missiles. But these are not conventional weapons that you just put on the border of a country and say, "Oh, I'm I'm defending myself against you." No, these are these are offensive. No matter how you look at them, these are offensive weapons. The only defense that comes from having a nuclear weapon is having a nuclear weapon. Putting it on someone's border is not a defensive move. Pointing it at somebody is not a defensive move. And putting it on a delivery system might technically be a defensive move because now you can guarantee it's going to hit the target, that, that target being someone who might be able to nuke you. But moving it to someone's border is a horrible idea. That's not defensive. That's just provocative. And I'm directing this blame primarily at the United States. Um, I, I'll just be straightforward with you. I, I blame America because we did not have to be involved in Ukraine. We still don't have to be involved in Ukraine. You, Ukraine is not a U.S. ally. 
we have no reason to be doing the things for them that we are currently doing for them. Like, and I know that that's a, a standard argument you'll get from any Republican or any moderately conservative person or anyone who just isn't a Democrat, uh, but most of them will immediately forget all those arguments when it comes to Taiwan. I won't. Haha. <laughs> I'll still be here. So don't don't you worry about me. But they're not. Ukraine is not a U.S. ally. There, we don't have a defense agreement with them. We don't. They're not a part of a broader alliance structure. We don't have a guarantee for their independence. We, we have nothing. There, there is no legal, no legal course of action that would demand we go defend them. There's no binding legal document saying we have to defend Ukraine. Nothing. We've chosen to do this. We've bet the family farm on it. When we didn't need to. We can still leave. You know, we can leave whenever we want. You know, I know the folks in Washington would love for us to believe that we couldn't. That just like they said, we couldn't leave Afghanistan. Just like they say, we can't leave Iraq. Or just like they say, we can't leave literally anywhere because they don't want to leave. They don't want to leave. That's just the problem. They don't want to leave. We can leave Ukraine alone. We don't have to bet our entire credibility as a, a, a military power on Ukraine, but they've chosen to do this. And all it's going to do is result in us losing that credibility because this is a losing bet. We did not have to be involved in Ukraine, and yet here we are. So I blame America. I also blame the United States primarily because Britain and France the only other countries in Europe who have nukes that aren't Russia, they aren't trying to place their nukes in other people's countries. It is America who is choosing to play this game. And if it goes south, we're all going to die. <laughs> There's just no other way of putting that. We're all going to die if this goes south. But if it goes, say, slightly less south, we could be looking at a second Cuban Missile Crisis. Because how did, how did the Cuban Missile Crisis begin? We put nukes in Turkey. And the Soviet Union didn't appreciate that. So they put their nukes, their intermediate range ballistic missiles, in Cuba. And we really didn't appreciate that. But that is the best example of what happens when you go putting your nukes on other people's borders using third countries. Well, they're going to find a third country to put their nukes in to threaten you, to get you back. And there are plenty of countries in Latin America who don't exactly have the highest opinion for us. Just look at Venezuela. Look at Nicaragua. Look at Cuba. Like, we meddle in other people's affairs so much, in, in the affairs of our own neighbors so much. We hold so low, such a low opinion from our neighbors. That they become a liability to us, and it's a result of our own actions. We want to we want to do all these things to Russia, but the second they get the idea of doing the things to us that we do to them, we're up in arms. But no one has, no one is able to be consistent in their logic. No one's able to put two and two together and say, hmm, if I put my nukes in Finland. If I put my more nukes in Poland, if I put my nukes in Turkey, if I put more nukes in Romania, 
to try to box Russia in. What would Russia do to respond to that? Now, granted, Russia has hypersonics, so they don't necessarily need to put them in anyone else's countries. They can reach us in minutes if they wanted to. But if they wanted to send a message that, hey, we can play this game too, well, who's to blame if they start putting nukes in Cuba again? Who's to blame if they start positioning hypersonic missiles in Venezuela? Is it the Rus- the evil Russians and the, the, the evil Putin who just randomly one day decided he was going to aggress upon America by putting his nukes in Venezuela? Or is it our fault for getting the bright idea of putting nukes on Russia's border? As if the Russians were just going to sit there and pretend that nothing was happening and do absolutely nothing about it. That's, it's, it's insane. We are to blame. We don't have to be playing these games, and yet we choose to do so. And if it goes south, we're all going to die. And if it goes less south, we're going to get a second Cuban Missile Crisis. And if we get a second Cuban Missile Crisis, well, let's look at the first Cuban Missile Crisis. Everyone except for Kennedy wanted war. Everybody except for Kennedy wanted war. And Kennedy had to turn down everybody. He had to resist the pressure of everybody. Everybody wanted to fire the first shot. Everybody's like, this is, this is an affront to the United States. We, we can't allow them to do this. We have to strike. We have to nuke Cuba. We have to attack Cuba somehow. Take those missiles out. Kennedy was the only one who said no to war. And it is because of him and him alone that we are not dead today. Because if we had actually attacked those those Russian missiles, we would have ended up killing the Russian personnel who staffed them and manned those missiles. Now the Russians have an excuse for war. We could have had World War III in the 60s were it not for just one man. And it took Kennedy staring down the barrel of the entire military-industrial complex. All the hawks, the war hawks in Washington and the Pentagon and the CIA. It took him standing them down to give Khrushchev the, the, the cover he needed to come to the table. It took Kennedy first to say, you know what, we're not going to go to war over this. We're going to use diplomacy. Khrushchev, thankfully, he, he also saw that this was insane and came to the table. And we both pulled our nukes away from each other. The Russians withdrew their nukes from Cuba. We withdrew our nukes from Turkey. It took an incredibly strong leader who had an incredibly strong will to resist all that pressure to get us to that happy ending. Do we think Biden is going to be that guy? No. No. No, he's he's not going to do any of that. He's not going to do any of that. He's going to get rolled over. He's an old, senile man. He's not going to resist the pressure. He's going to press the button. Everybody was like, Trump might start a nuclear war. Trump didn't start a war to begin with. He actually started negative wars. He got us out of Afghanistan. He got us out of Somalia. He, he was starting negative wars, i.e. ending wars. We got this guy Biden who goes right back into Somalia. 
who thankfully got a, who thankfully finished the withdrawal from Afghanistan only to put us into Ukraine. Like is this guy is this the guy who's going to stand up to all the calls for war? No, he's not. He's he hasn't he already hasn't. There you have all this money going to Ukraine. He's signed off on every bill. Every bill he has signed off on. If we end up in another Cuban Missile Crisis, we don't have the leadership. We don't have the strength of character in our current quote-unquote leadership, because these folks ain't leaders. None of them have the integrity to stand up to that kind of pressure. None of them have the resolve to find the diplomatic answer to the problems. And quite frankly, none of them are good at diplomacy anyway. <laughs> Just look at Blinken. You think Blinken is going gonna, is gonna to get us through this? No. We, we haven't even seen that nigga Lloyd Austin. Where is he going to be? Nowhere. He's going to be calling for the war. What's Kamala going to be doing? She's going to be nowhere to be found. Again. Biden's going to be asleep at the wheel. Literally. If we end up in a second Cuban Missile Crisis, it's a wrap. It is a wrap. We don't have the leadership. To go through that type of a crisis again and make the good decisions. At least we can't trust that the leadership we have is going to make those good decisions. Maybe they will. Maybe they will. Maybe maybe they, they need a little bit of shock therapy to get, them, get their brains thinking again. But I'm not going to trust that they can do that. M- Miss Border Czar has never been to the border. Blinken has yet to negotiate a successful foreign policy endeavor. Like, these these people are legit trash at what they do if we can't survive this. that's And that's if it goes less south. Because if it goes south, we all die. If it goes less south, we get a second Cuban Missile Crisis. And given our current leadership, we're probably all going to die anyway. Like, we don't need to be playing these games. This is a, a horrible game to play. We do not need to be putting our nukes in other people's countries to threaten yet another country. Because that's just going to provoke them to do the same to us. And then we're all going to cry foul. Let, like, let's get ahead of this and say no to the war. That's what, all, that's what I have to say about this. It's just crazy that we're, even, that we're even considering doing this. Like, Finland said when they joined NATO that it wasn't going to host military infrastructure. And now they're immediately going for the highest form of military infrastructure, the nukes. So it's, it's like, are we choosing suicide at not just a national but an international level (laughs) well an international i said inner are we choosing suicide at an international level like is this is this how we all go out from radical idealists and ideologues getting their hands on power for two seconds and then we all just go kabloom it's it's crazy it's crazy and Quite frankly, we, on a conventional level, we could also be looking at Russia invading Finland to preempt the arrival of these nukes. I don't know what the Russians are going to do. They, they've made that very clear to me over the course of the war. I cannot predict what these people are going to do on a military level. Like, I, I just can't. I just can't. That's a losing bet. I will lose money if I were to try to bet on what they're going to do. They could invade Finland. 
They could blockade. They could. They could get aggressive. Maybe they'll they'll sit it out, and let the nukes get there. I don't know if they're gonna do that. The they're very unpredictable. But when they say something, they mean it. So if they ever said, if Finland has access to these weapons, we're gonna do something about it. Well, we can trust they'll do something about it. And hopefully that doesn't mean ending Finland's existence as a country. Because at that point, we're talking war between Russia and NATO as a whole. And considering how much NATO has invested in Ukraine, only for Ukraine to end up losing the war, end up incapable of defeating an enemy that they have a two-to-one advantage to in the field. An enemy who is fighting by itself. Russia is by itself. They're not getting millions, they're not getting tens of billions of dollars of aid to help their war effort. The Ukrainians are, and the Russians, they, they just can't push the Russians out. So if all of NATO putting its weight into Ukraine can't deal with a an enemy force half your size, half the size of the Ukrainian army, what is all of NATO combined capable of doing? If the Russians chose not to hold back. I mean, we're talking... Russia has 160 to 200,000 troops in Ukraine. Or at least they did before they started the mobilization. Ukraine had 350,000 in the field at any given moment in time. So it's not like we're starting off with some huge numbers here. We're starting off with relatively small numbers. If all of our weapons and aid and money going into this country who has a two-to-one advantage on the field still can't win them the war well what happens if russia attacks any one of us directly like the united states might be able to fight them off britain is an island the rest of the rest of europe is just cooked their turkey gets cooked you end up with a war between russia and nato there goes the baltics right off the bat they're, they're dead they're dead. Russia will take them and they will they will never see the light of day again. They will be forever Russian again. They'll probably take parts of Poland. And get, take the river and make that the new border. They'll take Finland again. That little experiment with independence you had, oh, it's over. They'll take parts of Norway and get a nice straight line running from the southern, well, if you look at a map, and you see Sweden's border with Finland. Yeah, that border going straight up through Norway. Yeah. I mean, I mean think about it. That's something I've been thinking about over these past few weeks. We've given so much. And it can't win the war. What would happen if we ended up in a direct conflict? conflict a direct confrontation with Russia. If they can handle everything all of us together have to offer... On top of what the Ukrainians already had, if the Russians can take that while being at a numerical disadvantage, what is NATO going to do if it ever had to fight Russia head on? Like, that's some serious considerations. Like, we might have the numbers in terms of fielded manpower, uh, collectively, if you can create a united front line with a good chain of command to maintain the thing and keep it functional. But we can't outproduce Russia 
in weapons and munitions. We're running out of ammunition. We're running out of shells. We're running out of the things that we've been supplying Ukraine with. Russia's not running out. They're not running out of missiles and artillery shells. They're not, they're not running out of any of that. Russia by itself is outproducing all of NATO in, the, in these key areas for warfare. We're playing a dangerous game that might kickstart a war that we're objectively not going to win. Russia's not going to try to walk all the way to Paris. They might walk to Warsaw, though. They can go that far. They might walk to Chisinau. That's the, the capital of Moldova. They might do that. And then they have all the territory in Europe that they'll need to defend themselves. I mean, this is this war has exposed quite a lot in terms of what we are and are not capable of doing. So that's that's something I, I've been thinking about over these past few weeks. Like, they're withstanding everything we have in Ukraine, but we're not even directly at war. They could mess us up. And we're talking about using nukes and putting them on other people's borders. I have a feeling that this can all go south so easily and just blow up in our faces. Hopefully, if it does blow up in our faces, it's not nu- in the nuclear way. But it's a uh, this is a really dangerous game. And to make it an, a, more da- a dangerous game even worse, we have talk of a dirty bomb. <laughs> as, as, if, as if it couldn't get crazier... We have talk of a dirty bomb. This popped up uh, heavily over the course of the last week. Of course, it popped up right after I recorded the episode. You know, it's, it's, it's not like I wanted to talk about these things. You know, it's just so I guess, you know, it, I, I mean, who am I? <laughs> but you have to talk about a dirty bomb, and uh, things are things are getting serious. Like taking into account all that we've just talked about, and now we're talking about a dirty bomb. Things are getting serious, and I, I say this because, again, we've been hearing talk of Russia using nukes. Again, it's never us who are going to do this, but we, we hear talk of Russia and how Russia can use a nuke, and how he doesn't, Putin doesn't necessarily have to use his strongest weapon. He can just use tactical battlefield nukes and wipe out an entire army. It's like, okay, what happens to his own army when he does this? So it's very short-sighted. But we see that, we just talked about the U.S. accelerating plans to position its nukes in Eastern Europe, how easily that can go south. But the usage of nukes, as far as I can tell, has remained a very slim possibility. Like, again, this is a a very dangerous game of brinkmanship we're playing, but I don't believe either side is actually going to use nukes here. But it's very easy that this slips up. All it takes is an accident. It doesn't matter if you wanted it to happen or not. All it takes is an accident. And the wrong person being at the wrong time and making the worst possible decision. As almost happened multiple times over the course of the Cold War. I remember, I think it was Russian satellites that took a weather phenomenon and mistook it for the U.S. having emptied the nuclear clip on all of Russia. And they had to make a split-second decision as to whether or not they were going to launch their nukes in response. Thankfully, they didn't. 
and they found out that it was in fact just clouds. But what if they'd made the other decision and chose to launch new? We would have woke up dead and wondered why. But accidents can happen, which is what makes this whole thing even more dangerous. But in terms of intentions, I don't believe anyone intends on using these nukes, either Russia or the United States. It's a very slim possibility. Granted, it's a very overhyped possibility as well. Very overhyped. I mean, people believe Putin would do it, and they think that because they think he's insane and they think Russia's weak. But the problem with assessments based in those assumptions is that Putin is not a madman and Russia's not a weak country. People believe Ukraine has Russia backed into a corner, but Russia is actually a ridiculously strong country that just stole 20% of Ukraine's landmass, not counting Crimea, uh, and then shrugged off the mother of all sanctions. A feat which would not be possible if, one, Russia was weak, and two, if said weak country was actually led by a man who belonged in an insane asylum. It just wouldn't be possible. And yet here we are. So, you have, you have these misgivings about Putin and Russia that I feel really, really impair people's ability to assess this, this situation. It makes finding quality news on this topic hard, but you know me. I'm a junkie for this type of thing, so it didn't take too long. Uh, but anyway, Putin's not going to use nukes. And America is, uh, well, uh, while I heavily question our current set of leaders, uh, America is most likely not going to use nukes either. Britain and France aren't going to do anything themselves. They're not going to do anything by themselves. But then there's the loose end. Ukraine. A country who is severely weakened, a country who is backed into a corner, and is capable of taking independent action. Would they do something like this? They are more likely than anyone else involved in this situation. They are more likely than anyone else to use a dirty bomb. And uh, for those who don't know what a dirty bomb is, it's an explosive that isn't necessarily nuclear but spreads radioactive material upon its explosion. So you can effect it, you can get the after effect of a nuke without actually having a nuclear device. So it kills people over time and makes life rough in the place where the bomb goes off and is a, a really nasty thing. And that's so it's hard to clean up. That's sort of why they call it a dirty bomb. But it's 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 really nasty. It, I'll just say that it's nasty. But Ukraine is more likely than anyone else to do something like that. And I say that because Ukraine has the capability, one, to put a dirty bomb together. They have multiple functioning nuclear reactors. We know this. So they have the radioactive material, or at the very least, they have the... They have places where that material is readily available and accessible for them. It would not take long for them to get that material. And when you combine their ability to make this weapon with the fact that Ukraine is now resorting to blatant acts of terrorism, like 
the shelling of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant a couple months ago. They blamed it on Russia. The IAEA came in. They found that it wasn't that it in fact wasn't the Russians, and all of a sudden the Ukrainians stopped shelling the power plant. So it, they were shelling this power plant, this nuclear power plant. What, what would have happened had it gone south? Uh, you would have had an effect, a nuclear meltdown, which would have effectively been a dirty bomb in and of itself. It just perhaps wouldn't have been a bomb, but it, it would have been Chernobyl in the middle of a war. So they were shelling this power plant, likely in the hopes that it would do something like that to the invaders, because they, they didn't hold the territory anymore. The Russians held the territory. So you have them shelling this power plant. You have what recently happened on the Kerch Strait Bridge. That's the bridge going from Russia to Crimea. This massive truck bomb that went off and took off uh, one of the roads out of took one of the roads out of commission. Almost took one of the rail lines out of commission. And they and they're just they're celebrating this. Now, granted, they naturally would because these are things that are them attacking Russia and Russia attacking them. It's war, so it, I'm not going to pretend that this is just, oh, how dare they they celebrate these things, but let's call it what it is. These are blatant acts of terrorism that Ukraine is now resorting to. So when you combine their ability to make a dirty bomb with these with their embrace of uh, non-conventional means of fighting a war, up to and including terrorism, It makes them a very likely perpetrator of a dirty bomb attack. I don't... I hope that they wouldn't. I really hope that they wouldn't. But they're the most likely perpetrator. Just judging off their actions. Judging off the things that they are now willing to do. And judging off what they are capable of doing. Even still at this moment in time. They are the most likely perpetrator of something like this. And this would be perhaps the greatest escalation of hostilities in this conflict since Russia joined the war. The war has been going on for eight years between Ukraine and the Donbass. Russia joined on the side of the Donbass back in February. This, this will be the greatest escalation since Russia joining the war back in February. And to be frank... I'm not certain what would happen if a dirty bomb went off. I have no I have no clue. I I don't even have speculations in the back of my head as to what would happen. I I'd think at that point all bets are off. Cuz we've never we've never experienced something like that. Certainly not countries on this side of the world. And by this side I'm referring to Europe, not the United States. The the better side, you know. Uh, the the less good side of the world, <laughs> that being Europe, they've never experienced something like this, and since and we ourselves haven't either, and we're far away, but we like to pretend that we're two inches away from Europe all the damn time. None of us have any experience in dealing with a situation like this. Russia doesn't, China doesn't, the Middle East doesn't, Europe doesn't, the United States doesn't. Nobody has an answer to this. They might have answers for if it happens to their own country. No one has an answer for if this happens in their vicinity, but in someone else's country. 
Now, if it happens in Russia, Ukraine dies. Ukraine will die immediately. They will die a very swift and painful death. If it happens in anywhere, if it happens in Belarus, Ukraine will die a very quick and swift and painful death because Russia will step in on their behalf. What if it happens in Germany? What if it happens in France or Hungary or Italy or Poland? What if it happens in Romania and they just blame Russia? Who on our side is going to have... Uh, who, on our, who on our side is going to... The intellectual integrity to say it wasn't them. Or to at the very least say we should have an investigation. Who on this side of things it wouldn't jump the gun and immediately say it was Russia? Like, look what happened with Nord Stream. Who do they blame two seconds later? Russia. Now, with the Nord Stream pipelines, you can sit there and do nothing for a little bit. But if this is a dirty bomb, doing nothing for a little bit won't be an option, not politically. We have no response for this. We have no response. What if it goes off in Ukraine? I, 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 at this point, I'm not entirely convinced the Ukrainians are above slaughtering their own people for geostrategic gain if they think it'll get the West galvanized behind them again. If, the, if it goes off in Ukraine and the Ukrainians blame Russia, oh, heavens, we, we can't have Russia doing that. It'll be like the chemical weapons in Syria or WMDs in Iraq all over again. And people would fall for it. But that's if it happens in Ukraine. If it happens in any other country that isn't Russia or Belarus. That what's the response going to be? We don't have a response. We have no precedent for this. We, we just are not prepared to deal with this situation. And which makes it just as dangerous as placing nukes on Russia's border. We're in very uncharted territory, folks. Very, very uncharted territory. I am not certain what would happen if a dirty bomb went off. That, all bets are off. And I mean that, all bets are off. That, out of all the probable scenarios, and I'm not counting nuclear war as a probable scenario there, but a dirty bomb going off, out of all probable scenarios, would definitely be the worst case scenario. Because th that's when Pandora's box gets opened up. And it's really hard to put those things back in the box once they're let out. It's almost like a force of nature. And I pray that something like this doesn't come to pass. And if it does, I pray that we, I pray that our leaders are actually better than they make themselves out to look because they look trash. And I pray that we all live to see the other side of it. Now, Europe has enough problems as is. And I ain't fighting for Ukraine or NATO, for that matter. But all we can do is pray on this shit and hope and hope. Hope that we have some good leaders. That's that, That's about all we can do. That and protest. And hopefully they'll listen to us. But alas, alas, as crazy as all this is, that's all I've got for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's wild ride. 
on this geopolitical, my geopolitical podcast. This is insane, folks. This is, this is just insane. I have, out of, of all the weeks I've covered in this podcast, this is definitely uh, some game, uh, multiple game-changing moments that we're definitely going to be talking about for weeks, if not months, later on. Hopefully nothing goes wrong. But uh, if things do go wrong, you know, we can still have fun watching it together. Yeah. Assume we're all alive, you know. Gotta take care of your health first. But with that said, I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. And I've been your host, Hashan Wade. And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.